0: I learned from people that whatever we're going to do, we have to make. That part of abolition, in terms of what I've learned from folks who I respect, what abolition is, is that abolitionists make power, but we also make the conditions you know, we try to take the conditions as they exist and we remake those into the things that we want to see in the world. And so therefore, I'm not precious so much about like how, I I, I think we could use our abolitionist vision as a guide to do steps that will get us closer to where we want to go. So I don't fall into like, do we care about reforms or don't we care about reforms? We need steps. We need to get from where we are to where we want to go, and that organizing is the how we do that.
1: That was Miriam Kaba. Miriam is one of this country's leading abolition thinkers and practitioners. She has founded several projects organizing around abolition's principles, including Project Nia. Many of her writings on abolition are collected in a recent book, "We Do This to Free Us." While I had heard of Miriam and her work prior to recording this episode, I hadn't really actually met her. However, my co host, Toussaint Lucier, had known Miriam for several years, going back to their community organizing days in Chicago. I had a great time talking with Miriam, learning more about abolition, understanding some campaigns pushing for abolition in Chicago, Minneapolis, and Seattle, getting a better glimpse of the political strategies that abolitionists advance to achieve a world where various forms of violence are not a primary organizing principle promoted by the elites. I think we'll learn a lot from today's episode as well. This episode was recorded two days prior to the announcement of the success of the unionization campaign at the Amazon warehouse in Staten Island. Damn, they won. So unexpected. So wonderful. We've seen a series of unionization victories recently. We have also lost some battles. These ups and downs are to be expected, as the road forward is neither flat nor straight. One thing emerging from our conversation with Miriam about abolition campaigns applies to these campaigns as well. We can't measure our progress by simply counting our victories. The key measure of our progress is what we learn and how we grow. Let's go listen to the episode now. Hi, I'm Stephen Pitts here, host of Black our Talk. And my host is here, Tucson Logitech. Tucson, what's up, man? How you been doing?
2: I've been hanging in there, man. Um, you know, maintaining as usual. Uh, how about yourself?
1: It's okay. Nothing special. Um, you know, normally, we have kind of a, a topic of the day to talk about, but there's none to talk about. As I told you before, we will not talk about Chris Rock and Will Smith. That's been talked through to way too much, man. It's not for our show, at least. Um, but one thing has been, I've been thinking about, man, to be honest, this has got kind of, uh, some musings. I begin to remember that back in 1959, mm-hmm. the steelworkers had a nation, nationwide strike that mm-hmm. lasted for 116 days. And I keep wondering, what did it take to pull that off? Mm-hmm. Do we have a sense of how long it took to carry off the, the Memphis activity, Right citation workers. And I've yeah. always talked about the idea that folk Montgomery, you know, said no buses for a year basically, right? In fifty five. Yeah. But the idea that that folks for they only three quarters of a year said we aren't going to work mm-hmm. is also phenomenal in terms of it happening and how that actually was carried off. Sure. And we talked a couple of times in the show about the issue of durable organizations. So mm-hmm. I just wondered. So I've been trying to find new stuff about how they pulled it off. You know, so um Maybe the next show I'll find out and give you the, give you the word. Okay,
2: yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it's it's interesting. Um, if I if I may, it makes me think of these. Uh, for those of us who spend too much time on social media, it makes me think of these um, like Twitter conversations that happen where you have people who have called at different moments for like a general strike. Not people who are in any kind of organizations, but sort of sort of saying like we should have a journal strike or we should like do this as a way to push forward a particular demand or policy. And one of the things that um, when those are more serious conversations, people do get into the question of, you know, that is not something that that is just um, a sort of spontaneous activity that folks can launch into or just a um, an action that can be taken up willy nilly, but it needs it, it requires planning and um organization and resources uh, is one thing and the other thing is I'm actually reading right now uh, uh, Danielle McGuire's at the dark end of the street which talks about the sort of history of um, Rosa Parks's involvement in investigating and campaigning uh, in defense of uh, Black women who suffered at the hands of sexual violence uh, by white perpetrators and uh, that that Maguire makes an argument in terms of how much that history of um, organizing really laid the foundation for the civil rights movement, and the degree to which the kind of skills that Parks and others picked up in that kind of um, that kind of work translated into the civil rights movement, and also was an important aspect of what the civil rights movement was. Uh, and the broader freedom struggle was about, in many ways, um, in terms of dealing not just with questions of civil rights and freedom writ large, but also questions of uh, gender-based violence as well, too. You
1: know, you raised the question of, of violence, and it kind of is, is an is a interesting segue to our to our guest. I'm really excited to have a guest today. We have today with us Miriam Kaba, who does a lot of things. I don't want to try to capture I Miriam in your whole life in a short phrase, <laughs> but I'm super glad you're here with us from my perspective, um, you're one of the two or three leading people speaking about abolition and not talking about it in a rhetorical way, but in a deep, thoughtful, substantive way. And so I'm glad to to have you with us. So thanks for coming on. I really appreciate this.
0: Thank you so much for the invitation and for having me. Happy to be here.
1: This should be good. Um, So let's just jump right into it. Um, What is abolition? And what is abolitionism? (laughs) Yeah, I I say it because, you know, there's a lot of characterizations of what it might be. Sure. And people take one thing and all of a sudden they go way off some place in the, in the distance. Yeah. So I want to hear from you how you define it and talk a bit about the importance of it and so forth.
0: Absolutely. Well, I think for me, and I will speak for myself here, PIC or Prison Industrial Complex Abolition, um, which is the abolition that I am specifically grounded in, is a vision of um, kind of a restructured society within a larger world where we actually have everything that we need in order to thrive. Food and shelter and health care and health and art and clean water and education. Basically, all the things that are truly foundational to our personal and community safety. So, when people ask me to talk about PAC abolition in like the two minute uh, or one minute elevator pitch, I also like to just mention to people that often you'll hear PAC abolitionists say that um, one of the key objectives of abolition is actually the abolition of a society that could have prisons or policing or surveillance. And if that's true, then it means for PIC abolitionists that we're trying to uproot all different forms of oppressions and forms of domination. And those include so many things, right? Those include imperialism and racism and sexism and ableism and transphobia. Essentially trying to foster a different way of living together um, that's based on something other than domination and violence and trying to build a world anew. So that's my little short pitch of what abolition, PIC abolition in particular means to me and, you know, from the people that I've learned from over the years. Yeah, I hope that's clear for folks.
1: Well, you could have had more than a minute pitch. You could give me a two minute pitch, but we'll deal with that, okay?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't want to go on and on for folks for too long. It gets like, well, and so and so has this to say. Well, this is my little summary.
1: (laughs) But I do have a clarifying question, though, Miriam. Um, Yeah. Because you kept saying PIC abolition Mm -hmm. and, 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 kind of putting a modifier of the prison industrial complex in front of mm-hmm. abolition. Why yeah. is that? I didn't know that that was a thing to do, by the way. So I'm learning here. So explain yeah. why why you modified it.
0: Um, I, I'm very specific in what I'm kind of the area of my focus and of my work and why I center the prison industrial complex in that. There was the abolition of chattel slavery, which was its own movement and uh, focus area of struggle. Uh, There are people who talk about being abolitionists today who are doing work to, quote, abolish sex work and prostitution and the sex trade. So they also call themselves abolitionists. There are folks who call themselves abolitionists who currently think that we're living under, quote, prison slavery. And so they really focus on themselves as abolitionists of prison slavery. Um, I don't think we're under a regime of prison slavery. And so I think that there are different kinds of ways that people position themselves in abolitionist struggle. And I think it's good to be precise. Um, I also think it's important to be precise when we're thinking about, at least for myself, it's just important to be precise. You know, there are people who are, uh, who have a political leaning That would be, I would characterize as anarchist leaning who are also abolitionists, but they're anarchists as their political vision and abolition, you know, falls within that political vision, but that's the driver. And so they're looking for no state in the end. You know, there are communists, abolitionists. There are, um, I wouldn't say there are any, you can't really be a liberal abolitionist because in order to be an abolitionist, you're also having to be anti-capitalist. And so, you know, these are the things that, these are the kind of nuances to a broad umbrella. And so I just wanted to be precise in in making it clear, like, what kind of place I begin with in my abolitionist uh, politics.
1: Yeah, that's really clarifying. I appreciate that. I would say, though, that as you get more and more power in, in this movement around the PIC abolitionist. I'm sure the elite will try to find a way to it. You'll find some sort of liberal abolitionist, I guarantee you, okay? <laughs> so just, just, just wait. Well, Maybe. people
0: will say that. I think there are already people who say things like, for example, I'm an abolitionist, but I think you have to keep prisons. Well, then you're not actually, you know. Like I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to gatekeep anyone. I promise. But like, there are some kind of basic things you have to subscribe to if you're if you're really a pac abolitionist. So yeah,
2: I think I think the liberal abolitionists are are, are the ones that are going to be that are going to have those. Uh, what is it? The self, the inherent contradictions in their in their politics in the first place. Yeah, in terms of being like. Yeah, you know, I support defunding the police, but, you know,
0: maybe not yeah. right now or something. Yeah, like that. exactly. Exactly. So not going too deep
1: into theory, but, but as you're talking about the different kind of threads of other folk who claim to be abolitionists, you mentioned the issue of the anarchist and the state. So how does the state fit into your vision? Since I thought you were saying that you were not an anarchist, and I th- therefore I thought you were saying that there might be some role in your world of the state down the line? I well, no, what I
0: said, what I said are that there are anarchists who are also abolitionists and that there are, you know, communists who are also abolitionists and there are different kinds of uh, people who are, uh, you know, adopt a particular political tendency who also are abolitionists was what I was saying. I mean, the question of abolition in the state is the question of the left and the state. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a much it's 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 a site of contestation and, and ongoing conversation it's, and and also trying to make sense of all of those things so I don't you know I have no one thing that I can say about that except to say that for me, as long as there is a state, we have to make demands of it, and we have to be antagonistic to a capitalist state so because I'm an organizer first and an educator for like, like I, I want to try to think about what is the context that I'm in right now. And I want to try to figure out what are the conditions that exist that I need to be informed about, educated about in order to be able to try to move the ball forward towards the vision I'm trying to engage. So I've had lots of, I mean, we just had two really Interesting gatherings with a bunch of abolitionist thinkers and organizers back last year in the fall, and then again early this year. There couldn't have been more differences in terms of where people were landing. Whereas there were people saying no to this, like, you can't, the reason that we can't have a state is because there's no way to have a non carceral state, that the state is inherently always going to be carceral. And therefore, you know, why are we wasting all our time trying to think about the state that way? I don't know that that's true. I think, you know, I think that there are different kinds of formations and forms and that the state is people and that ultimately, you know, as people, we can make things that are different from what we currently have. So maybe it's not this state, but it could be a form of something that takes the, you know, because how are we going to redistribute resources? What are we going to do about getting things to people so that they can live that aren't things we can do as individuals only, right? Like, those are the questions at work. So I, I, I tend to, my tendency in terms of my political vision, I probably would be, if I had to characterize myself, I would say I'm more like a commu-socialist probably in terms of my, you know, my tendencies and my beliefs about how we move in the world and how we arrange ourselves in some sort of a formation collectively. But like that doesn't really ultimately matter to me so much as it does like figuring out how we're going to end the current ways that the carceral state has basically worked to destroy communities and individuals in multiple kinds of ways. So, so yeah, so that's, if that answers it, it's basically that I'm pretty much, I, I, I could be convinced by my anarchist friends to move to where they are. If I see that the way that they are able to get, then it gets me closer to the vision that I'm trying to actually fight for. So
2: yeah. Sure. First, I appreciate that. And two or second, The prison industrial complex uh, or PIC abolition reminds me obviously of critical resistance. And I'm curious from your perspective, to what do you attribute the, in this moment, in this period, the real significant interest and engagement with abolition. Mm -hmm. Um, In contrast, you know, like, I remember critical resistance meetings from, like, I don't want to, like, (laughs) date myself, right? But I remember, like, critical resistance meetings from, like, the, er what was it, early, like, mid-2000s, you know? Mm -hmm. And you would get some people coming in the room, but it wasn't a whole lot of people um, (laughs) around the table, right? And uh, after going to a couple meetings, you got to meet, you got a sense of who all the people in the room were. Yeah. It, and it wasn't as if people were really taken with the idea of abolition. Mm-hmm. You know, I think people were, you know, were passionate about the PIC and were involved in various different abolitionist campaigns. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, we're we're in a moment. We've been in a moment where the idea of abolition has really caught a lot of people's attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm curious to what to what you attribute that to, or sort of what you see as the some of the forces that have helped shape the um, the rise in interest in in abolition.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great question. How to figure out when an idea that many people have been part of promulgating over generations decides to catch on. The meeting of, you know, history of the moment versus like the preparation and the space that all the spaces that came before. And I I, I don't know how to separate out those very tiny meetings. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, and I was in those meetings, too. Mm -hmm. And those very um, kind of the political education and the popular education that those millions and millions of workshops that happened over a whole series of time. To create, frankly, a cadre of people who could speak to these ideas in a way that was accessible and I think of value to some people. But I also think like the times were in call for something different. And you could see this in a very short time. And I know you know this, Toussaint. Like, just thinking about Chicago, when I moved to Chicago in 1995, I think there was one organization at that time that I could point to that was actually saying at the time, like, maybe we should just close all the youth prisons. You know, like, I I think there may not even been an organization. I think there was like a person that I knew, right. When I came to the city, I mean, that is not even that's, we're so far past that now, Mm -hmm. but the, 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 the difference between 95 to now are all the social movements that pressed people forward to push them to make bigger demands. So you can see, for example, the demands that were made after Mike Brown was killed, which were about body cameras, civilian review, all these other kind of things that people who are pushing and had been pushing for a while that felt like the, the summit of what people could demand at the time, even though people were still abolitionists at the time, were saying, this is going to be a problem, y'all. Like, do not ask for body cameras. I mean, We Charge Genocide put out a whole thing saying no to body cameras. So there was argument and tension, but people felt like, I, I feel like people felt like at least we got to ask for these things under the banner of reform. Those very same people who were making that push, plus new people, By the time George Floyd is killed, know that body cameras are going to make no difference. Know that, you know, and meanwhile, have had a couple of years on the ground where they had already been pushing for invest-divest as a framework for actually moving. And that came out of, in large part, among many young organizers, came out of the Vision for Black Lives policy statement in 2016, which made an explicit invest-divest frame so that you could have Black Visions in Minneapolis already have made, they already had two years behind them, one year of having won a defunding of uh, the police department in 2017, one year of backlash in 2018 to that money getting put back in, George Floyd dying in 2020, being murdered in 2020, they already had the language for Mm -hmm. saying defund the police, right? And connecting it to an abolitionist organizing strategy because Candace and Miski and all those other people had been to a bunch of trainings I had done about transformative justice and abolition in 2015, right? Like, so there's these ways where the genealogy of ideas finds purchase in some ways based on the conditions of the time, what people had tried before, the fact that there was language on the ground that people could pick up and use. So all those things to me are how things get elevated, and then spontaneous things that we can't control ever. So that's a little bit of what I see. And when you point to, you look at some of the key organizers around the country, and if you look at their individual genealogies, you'll see the connections to other people and other organizations that pre-existed that, that kind of allowed for this moment to happen. So that's what I would say.
2: And, and just real quick, thank you for that. And real quickly, before Stephen asks the next question. Could you just explain for folks what We Charge Genocide is? Because I don't want people to get that confused with like...
0: Yes, yes.
2: Yeah. Paul Robson in 1951 and what have you.
0: Absolutely. In 2014, in May, a young man named Dominique Franklin Jr., who um, had just started being part of a formation that I helped to found called Circles and Ciphers in Chicago was murdered by the Chicago Police Department. He was accused of trying to steal a pint of some sort of drink from a local Walgreens. They s- supposedly said that they chased him. He fell and hit his head against a very a steel pole, and he ends up uh, dying and being dead. But the turns out that the police actually tased him and tased him twice, and that's how he hit his head. Anyway, long story short is he was killed a bunch of the young people who were part of circles and some other spaces that I was involved in as an adult kind of ally and supporter were more just despondent, absolutely despondent. I mean, just to a point where I hadn't seen them as despondent before. And long story short is I called together a meeting, invited a bunch of them and their friends and other pe- organizers who I knew to come together to say, like, what might we do together? to address this particular murder, but do something beyond just addressing this one specific murder by the Chicago Police Department. And I already had in mind this idea of using the We Charge Genocide petitioning process that had happened in 1951 with Du Bois and Paul Robeson and William Patterson and a whole bunch of other Black leftists as a framework for saying, what if we do our own version of a We Charge Genocide, but for the 21st century, and we send a bunch of young black and brown people to Geneva to make a case that the Chicago Police Department is torturing young black kids in Chicago. And the idea had been that I thought at the time that making an offering of doing something like that would bring us together community-wise would also give those young people, some of whom were friends of Damo, a place to be able to make a larger claim. But also, Chicago, you—you'll know this, of course, both of you, from Chicago, and having lived in Chicago so many years, Toussaint. That the Chicago media was not covering these cases for many years, like the cases of the cops. Like they basically, after first of all, after years of not covering John Burge. They finally covered him, and then they stopped covering these cases like we couldn't get local media coverage to pay attention to police murders, and I was like, what if we take it outside the local context, internationalize this idea, which would bring also national attention, which might also push local attention, right? So anyway, so we did do this. We raised money. These young people went. They created their own report. They testified to the U.N., and Mike Brown was killed a couple of months after we had started organizing the We Charge Genocide gathering um, or or formation, which we were like a loose gathering. It's not an organization. It's just like a, a, an effort to actually do this thing together. And yeah, and so that was We Charge Genocide. So we we had our first meeting. And early June of 2014, and then Mike Brown was killed in early August of 2014. So the convergence happened between like this group that had already started doing this work on Damo's work, and then Mike Brown getting killed, which escalated all the stakes, right? And then they went to Geneva in November of 2014, and then had a big report back to the community in December of 2014. I think you were there as well and on our panel for that at Roosevelt and then took that energy and the work they had done into a fight for reparations for police torture survivors because that had been 35 years in the making. You had this group of young people of all races, but particularly with a centered vision of young black and brown people at the center. And we were like, okay, we've come back from this trip to Geneva Now here on the ground here locally, here's an opportunity to pick up this demand for reparations for John Burge's torture survivors, push the mayor who was embattled at the time to deliver on it. You can be part of making this part of this campaign. So that's how those things work themselves out.
1: So I'm still kind of trying to deal with the idea that 2002 is a dating year, because I know years earlier than 2002, by the way. That was really good, Miriam. In a lot of ways, I liked how you tried to ground. We well, did ground, kind of the rise of abolitionism and kind of certain concrete conditions. And, and what I thought about your talking that—that's that's both what is present, but was the absent. And so when when I became of age, my two thousand two, which is, my say, maybe in seventy two or seventy four, right? You still had an idea of a strong labor movement, and we can talk about the politics, but it existed, is in in the air. And you still had the, the, in the air the, the black power movement, and that activism still was there. And it seems to me that we look at that today, beyond the idea of the rise of mass incarceration, kind of the, 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 the initial setting for all this stuff, th- that you had kind of the decline in other forces that could be present. And that's also part of the context. And so you mentioned the idea of 35 years, now I think about the math there, that's roughly when you saw the death of Harold Washington and the decline of that movement in Chicago. And so what you see in some ways is simply almost empty territory, our progressive, t- progressive politics, is part of the story as well. But it's good to hear the details. Um,
0: Can I add one thing? Because I think this is important. And I think sh- this context in Chicago is so different than other places around the country for this. In our experience, part of why I think we could win reparations was because a lot of the folks who had been doing the work in the 1980s and 70s were, still are very present on the scene in Chicago. We had Stan Willis. We had Frank Chapman and the folks from the Chicago Alliance Against Political Repression, who were very active, still on the ground, pushing legislation policies, telling stories about you know, the experiences they had organizing in the 70s and the 80s, who were all very much part of the reparations movement and the reparations struggle. So a lot of the younger people who had no background in those ideas did have those direct connections that got made with some of those older people who'd been, been part of the Black radical tradition and knew and heard the stories from them and got direct direction from them and ideas, whether they agreed with those or not was on the ground. The other thing is you're talking about labor. In Chicago, we had like a a revived um, CTU, the Chicago Teachers Union strike, which had happened not long before 2014. It happened, I think, in 2011 Mm -hmm. or so, 2012.
2: Yeah, 2011,
0: 2012. 2011, 2012. So a lot of the people who Like, still had connections to labor. And CTU was really helpful in the reparations fight. They took a position, they uh, pushed the mayor, they got their members out to our events and to our, you know. So, like, I think that your point is well taken. And it actually made a difference in the campaigns we ran and won in Chicago that we had those folks and those connections that could be made on the ground.
1: That's good. Um, So, I think about. The, the idea of fighting for reparations of those people who were tortured by the Chicago police. As an outsider, I'll say in the, the, this kind of perspective, that to me is an example of kind of a, a non-reformist reform. It mm-hmm. was one. Mm-hmm. And, and so a question I had leading to this conversation was kind of, like any, any cases where you might see abolition of politics put into place, and lesson mm-hmm. learned from that.
0: Mm-hmm. And, I, and as I
1: hear you talk now, that question, as I was going to frame it, is framed poorly given the idea of abolition actually is, your version of abolition, but you, you you can have kind of clear wins in the short term yep. that are, are simply non-reformers, reformers, you might say. Yep. So kind of rephrasing the question then, can you think of, of, of that or other campaigns mm-hmm. for reforms in abolitionist context? Mm-hmm. And any lessons learned um, from those?
0: Yes, thank you for asking about that. I'm a huge, again, I, I, I do think that I may... I'm probably a little different than other folks in general because I feel like I learned from people that whatever we're going to do, we have to make, you know, that part of abolition in terms of what I've learned from folks who I respect, what what abolition is, is that abolitionists make power, but we also make the conditions you know, we try to take the conditions as they exist and we remake those into the things that we want to see in the world. And so therefore, I'm not precious so much about like how, I I, I think we could use our abolitionist vision as a guide to do steps that will get us closer to where we want to go. So I don't fall into like, do we care about reforms or don't we care about reforms? We need steps. We need to get from where we are, to where we want to go, and that organizing is the how we do that. So I just want to say that up front. And and because of that, I've been very encouraged by seeing the ways that abolitionists really around the world are trying to find modes of organizing or collectivity towards survival that have the most purchase in our time and for our particular communities. And one example that I've really been excited by is the Seattle solidarity budget process. The Seattle solidarity budget process is a really good current site of struggle and a real example of solidarity in practice, um, where organizers, many of whom are abolitionist organizers, are helping to lead an ongoing campaign, which is to divest from the policing and prisons and death-making institutions, and to invest in a whole host of things that people ought to be wanting living wages, environmental justice concerns, you know, new housing, uh, free transportation. They've got a wonderful website, which I'll send to you a link of, or if Susanne doesn't already have it, but I think your listeners will be very interested to look, for example, at the list of almost 200 community groups that supported the 2021 Solidarity Budget and you will see the listing and you've got labor, you've got like transit authority workers, you've got all these people coming together under this umbrella. It didn't just happen, right? They created and did people's uh, assemblies, people's movement assemblies to come to fights over like what should be included in this, right? Um, they did so much stuff and the coalition has had actually some successes, because they were able to cut about 11% from the Seattle Police Department budget last year. And then they've got 30 million extra dollars for participatory budgeting. They were able to like do a whole bunch of really useful things on the ground. And so, again, to me, what I deeply appreciate about it, I think it does what we most need, which is to convene people across communities and sectors to really have robust conversations and arguments and make decisions about what our communities really most want and value and prioritize those and then fight for them together. Um, So they've done that, again, as I mentioned, through people's assemblies. They've done it through all other kinds of democratic spaces where they can try to argue with each other. And they're very different. You can see from the list of the people who endorsed it, they're not all coming from the same political vision. And the work has really been grueling. And there have been efforts by the cops and by politicians and by reactionaries to derail the initiative. There's been internal conflicts among the members of the coalition, but they're still working together, persisting and fighting it through. And I think that's a terrific example of a creative and a real generative defund campaign that abolitionists have really played a, a, a key role in, you know, shaping and in helping to co-create. So that's just one example. I, you know, I think you could look at what people are trying to do with the just transition framework as another place where a, mon- a bunch of abolitionists exist and are working and are fighting with other people alongside them for a different kind of framework of a world where we have n- less extraction or no extraction that is harming and exploitative and that instead really focuses on building the commons in a way that would be useful. So yeah absolutely you can see it it's on the ground but of course if you're not involved and you're not doing any organizing everything is bleak and there's nothing going on and you have great ideas for everything and it's like but there's actually shit going on you could be contributing to <laughs> so i'm always like people are telling me all sorts of stuff. i'm like well people are organizing just right now like go help them you know so i, I want to
1: pose pose a question of like power building strategies um one thing that kind of drives me and drives the, the show is a, a, a supposition that the black left has inadequate power given our goals in life, we want to achieve. And so an important question to me as always is that power building strategy. In the area of the PIC abolition stuff, what gets mediated through the the, the elite press is this kind of tension between the idea of quote unquote abolishing police and the question of, of public safety and so if you talk a bit about how you have seen put into practice or you envision either one's fine right now power building strategies to deal with those sort of perceived tensions
0: yeah I mean I, I tend not to to worry so much about that I feel like I know what I what I am worried about and what I do know is that the forces of organized violence are better organized than we are. They're better organized in every possible way. They also don't just have, you know, the forces of organized violence also have organized money. And we don't have organized money, and we're not really organized in terms of our people. So we're, we're in struggle. Compared to that, it's always like a mismatch. And so I really think that, for myself at least, I think we have to keep and continue to build as much power as we can by doing the things we can to build that power. I take as a given that we can't have full personhood for Black people in the United States unless we have freedom from policing in prisons. Um, I, I just, I don't think it's possible. I don't think it's going to happen. And so therefore, if that's true, then we have to figure out a way to build a world without policing in prisons, right? Like, I just don't think it's possible to untangle those things from each other. I know there are plenty of Black people who want prisons and police. Like, that's not, I'm not in an argument around that, right? I'm saying that we are not going to achieve full freedom for Black people with these institutions in place. It's not possible. So we need to get rid of those institutions. Now, when we talk about safety, I talk about an abolitionist vision of safety. I'm not interested in security. That's not of interest to me. I'm interested in safety. And so when I talk with folks about safety, I talk about it from the perspective of what is safety, which is, to me, it's the ability to basically to bring, to be, and to move through the world as your full self. Okay? That's safety. So therefore, how do we get there? What do we do? What does it look like to be able to, as a black person, to have your ability to bring, to be, and to move through the world as your full self? Now I wanna have that conversation with you. Like, you know, that's where I wanna begin. And for the most part, people don't immediately jump to telling me that they need prisons and policing for that to happen. They have a whole bunch of other things they want. They want great schools for their kids, and they want an ability to have all the food they need to be able to not be hungry. And they want healthcare that is actually free and accessible. And they want housing that is safe. And they want water that is clean. And so we can have a totally different conversation about what safety means if we start from there, rather than me arguing on the terms of organized violence. I've never seen something that is so clear to me that sometimes just does not seem clear to other people, which is how is it that a system that has every possible resource at its disposal, consistently still doesn't make anybody feel safe. Like how, how is that possible? And then when you turn to that same group of organized violence, the response is we need, the reason you're not safe is because there needs to be more of us. So it's always heads they win and tails they win. If there are not enough of them, you have to put more resources in to get enough of them. They get all the resources. People still are unsafe, still do not use those systems. But the problem is that they need even more resources to keep growing, expanding further and further, further with no accountability whatsoever for, quote-unquote, doing the thing they say they're supposed to be doing. And they've had generations of time to prove that they, quote-unquote, can do this. Meanwhile, on the other side of town are all the people who have none of the organized money, who've had none of the years to be able to practice. And we're supposed to quote proof, proof of concept based on what exactly? And I just reject it. I reject that as a way of, of framing the issue or as me being having to talk through those lenses or whatever. I'm like, no, actually I disagree. Most people don't use the police ever, okay? Like, that. can we start there? Most people never call the cops for anything. So that tells you something from the beginning, from where we start, right? Um, That they aren't as essential as they purport to be in the world. And that people always find ways to be able to intervene when harm occurs. Are they always good ways? No. But the system doesn't provide in the way that it says it's supposed to provide to people either. So I think those are the places where I usually start. And I usually get a lot of people on my side around thinking about stuff when those questions are posed in a non-confrontational way by just saying, like, okay, cool. What is safety for you? Are you achieving it? Is the current system delivering for you? If not, what else? So
1: Miriam, earlier you mentioned, Miriam, about, about um one thing that they've done was have like people's assemblies and so forth. And, and, and that kind of gets to, it's a better way of me expressing my kind of question to you. It wasn't so much dealing with the frame that, mm-hmm. that you knows wrong in many, many ways.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's more how do you organize, organize power to win.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I think of, from my kind of experience, either been in the groups or been around, yeah. you know, unions, right, are a yep. way to have an organization to deal with issues. Mm-hmm. And with it comes a lot of stuff. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um because you have basically a broad umbrella with a lot of folk who yeah. agree, disagree, and so forth. Or I, I, I ordered a book recently that talks about the block clubs in Chicago. Yeah. And my memory of of block club, you, you block off the street and have a party or that That's scene right. in the shy, I guess last season, right? They're doing the kind of party and so forth. Yes. But we have a block club, once again, it's a broad umbrella. A lot of different people have different views on stuff. Yeah. So I'm trying, trying, trying to trying think through not so much the um
0: Yeah. You're trying to think what the structures are. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. And who the allies might be and how you deal with people who, people in institutions that aren't privates of violence, Mm -hmm. but are regular folks see the world as as they see it Mm -hmm. it in complicated ways. That's what it's heading toward more. Yeah,
0: absolutely. There's a great, that's a great question. And the answer is I have no idea what the structures are, are that we need to build beyond the fact that I know we need democratic structures where people can come together and argue these things out. And I think in the ways that I've seen, for example, the nurses union, pick up on abolitionist thoughts and trainings. And, you know, I was invited to give a presentation, which I ended up not being able to do because I ended up having another conflict. But to talk to the nurses' unions about abolition and abolitionist struggles, I think we have to be in all different spaces talking about abolition in the same way that I mentioned before, that there are different political valiances within abolitionist struggle, different points of emphasis. It's a broad umbrella. I think that that's the the way we have to talk about these issues, that we have to be everywhere. And I think to me, what I'm I'm excited about is I'm seeing a lot of abolitionists in multiple kinds of spaces. I co-founded a group called Interrupting Criminalization in 2018 with my friend Andrea Ritchie. And one of the things we just put out last fall was this thing called the Transformative Justice Help Desk, which is a national help desk that people who are currently working on... um, on uh, creating um, community responses to violence that don't rely on law enforcement, can call the number and speak to a long-term, long-time transformative justice practitioner and thinker named Shira Hassan to help them think through the actual on-the-ground issues they're dealing with in their programs that they're putting together and their projects that they've been testing out around how to respond to various kinds of harms in their community without relying on law enforcement. And one thing that we learned, which we didn't anticipate at first, she has gotten calls from school districts, has gotten calls from churches and community synagogues who are trying to figure out how not to call the cops. She's gotten calls from businesses that are like literally grocery stores who are like, we don't want to rely on police. And we were trying to figure out how to do that and what we need to do. People are thinking this stuff through. They just don't have, we don't have like the national association of call this place to figure out, you know, the, the big uh, movement spaces that are every, you know, people are doing it in all these different kinds of ways. And I think in all these ways, what I try to do in my work is to give people spaces to argue together and to think, and to know that they're not alone in thinking these ideas forward, Um, But obviously we need much more and we need them to be bigger and we need them to be more embedded in our communities and we need different messengers. Like I'm not a good messenger for a particular kind of community and community group. I'm a good messenger for my communities, you know? And so I think that that's something to consider and think about. And I'm sure you're thinking it through in whatever, you know, labor is thinking it through (laughs) right now in multiple kinds of contexts. And so that's not any different from an abolitionist thinking process or at least PIC abolition.
1: I see a question coming from Tucson. I see a deep thought there. Is that a question? I just
2: no. Um, it's, I'm o- I'm always in deep thought when I'm in conversation with Miriam. I'm very much enjoying
1: <laughs> <during> the moment. <laughs> but but not me. Damn, dude. I feel I feel, I feel now. I feel kind of just, yeah. Well, that was, I'm sorry. That was a
2: little. That was a little. <laughs> so, so. You know. No. It's actually. It's 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 uh, for some reason. And I told myself I wasn't going to do this, but some reason we always get into these kind of like joking back and forth when we're in conversation together. So I don't know. I don't know, you could, you, it could be deep thought, or we could just be, maybe I'm just comfortable enough being in conversation with you where, you know, we just start cracking jokes and, you know, we go from the serious stuff to, to talking about workplace organizing at Starbucks and how that is the uh, the, that. the frontal <laughs> point of the next uh, revolutionary upsurge.
0: I hear so, that.
1: <laughs> but, but one thing I did think about, and I will refrain my, my little jokes that I normally initiate, by the way. And, and, um. A couple things. One, I was listening to, I think it's a podcast by Mia Birdsong. And Mia was talking about how, I think she came out here to California. Um, this might have been in the late 1990s. And she heard a, a talk from Angela Davis. Mm-hmm. And and that's when she heard the idea of abolition.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And kind of saw that was her lesson, how, how she wanted to roll. And what it made me think about is how for, this may be partially correct, largely incorrect, or whatever. But I think for a lot of folk... We need ways to describe a desire for revolution, fundamental change. Mm-hmm. And I think that, in the absence of other stuff, for a lot of folk, the idea of abolition captures that spirit in some ways. And and and, and that made me think about the idea of abolition in different ways. Because mm-hmm. when you began to talk about what it meant for you to be PIC abolitionist, and I, I was looking through your, your book and you talked about how you kind of saw the the, the kind of blending of Black feminism mm-hmm. and abolitionism, that mm-hmm. I think that oftentimes what we all need is a way to express our desires. Mm-hmm. And they come out in a context. And in the current context, the way that people, people express the need for fundamental change is, is through abolition. Mm-hmm. But as you mentioned, as you talked about it, you also have a view about political economy. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that be anti-capitalist. Are you some communist socialist? Are you were some commu-socialist, whatever you're going to call yourself, right? Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, I, said, I said I don't want a label, but if I have to take a, a place, I would probably yeah, be I a commu-socialist of some sort. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Well, mm-hmm. I won't ask for a one-minute speech on that, by the way. Yeah, please go. <laughs> but but my, my point, though, is simply that there's a lot to one's vision of the world mm-hmm. beyond just kind of a narrow view of no prisons. Is sure, that, that's all. of course. Um, so when you think about political economy, kind of go go a bit more into it, because I, I, I'm, I'm raising the question because I think that the way that the elites get to dampen our movements is because we don't oftentimes talk about political economy. And they find ways to absorb a lot of our so-called demands. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't remember, God, maybe 20 years ago, and Target started sh- selling some Kinte cloth. Damn, Target's got going to sell Kinte cloth, right? And, and, and so we have ways of expressing things that they can absorb Because oftentimes the fundamental critiques aren't there. And I just want to raise the issue of, of, saying more explicitly, the idea of the link between a critique of our current political economy and abolitionism.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think the critique is immediately embedded in the demand to defund the death-making institutions and fund institutions that will give people life and wellness and space, right? Like the whole concept of recommoning, you know, that that is integral to an abolitionist set of demands. You can't separate those things out together. I think, you know, we can have long conversations around the connections between surplus and crisis. We can have, uh, you know, these conversations around what, what does Ruthie say all the time, which is that capitalism requires inequality and racism enshrines it. You know, I mean, these are all things that are part of an abolitionist frame and understanding. For me, for me, the question always is a notion that, like, we cannot have a capitalist society and an abolitionist horizon, they do not work together. And that has to do with the fact that capital, um, basically as a, as a as a way of structuring how resources are delivered and how they are how labor is extracted from people in a way that alienates them their, themselves from labor right, from their own labor and from their own products of their labor, that that kind of society has to have prisons and policing and all these other kinds of structures, because they have to keep people in check, <laughs> like, you know, and because they also have to uh, dispose of particular people that aren't of use, right, that aren't of use, and where to place all those people, what to do with all those people, these kinds of other death-making institutions sometimes resolve those problems. So for me, you know, if, if, if the notion of what a political economy is, is basically the use of state power to make decisions about who gets what, when, why, where, in terms of the distribution of public goods and social values, what, what, what I think about when I think about that political economy is we need a non-carceral state that actually provides people with the things they need in order to thrive. And I don't think you can do that under a capitalist model. So that's really the bottom line there. For me, that's always been pretty clear, even when it wasn't clear that I could adopt an abolitionist politic. That preceded my abolitionism, right? My anti-capitalism came before that. Because I grew up in a community with the parents, with a, you know, a space that was intrinsically that. So, and there is no separation of, uh, uh, you know, you're going to always bring together the political and economic and social considerations in terms of allocation of resources in any struggle and fight. And ultimately, that's part of an abolitionist vision and an abolitionist politic. Yeah.
2: Just kind of building on this point about the the political economy of it and I think particularly the political economy in a way that builds beyond just the state, but just also how we think about and conceptualize the broader sort of like economic landscape and the way in which, you know, the kind of like what that means in terms of the different like industries and class structure and all mm-hmm. that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Also, I just thinking about this moment, too, and Stephen's earlier question around strategy, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm wondering how, um, like, those of us who are committed to an abolitionist politic make sense of this moment. And I say this having, like, followed the ballot initiative that happened in the Twin Cities around changing the police department there into a department of public safety mm-hmm. alongside the broader way in which rather than incorporating the defund demand, we actually saw the democratic party Uh and really the kind of like centrist right-wing elements of democratic party directly, Uh I would say successfully argue against the demand for defunding the police. And, in a way that not only mobilized like the Panera bread voters that I think they counted in different ways, but also like get a lot of Black folks as well to mm-hmm. seeing defund as a as a as a threat to their sense of safety in some sense. Mm-hmm. And I kind of um, I, I I know the sort of like the kind of electoral politics comes at it in a little bit of a different angle than most of the kind of like. Ways in which abolitionists talked about, but how, how to, I guess what I'm curious about is how to make sense of a moment where what I would assume are the constituencies that are most supportive, would be most supportive of an abolitionist politic, right? Which are like working class black communities have been um, uh, in some ways mobilized to see the arguments against defund as arguments that are in their favor?
0: You know, I think we have to have a real conversation that would take a million more hours. <laughs> there are just, there are, there's a know. lot, yeah. And but there's all all. a lot know. that I really just don't agree with, which is here's the thing mm-hmm. police are very popular. Mm-hmm. Like the cops mm-hmm. are majorly fucking popular. In this country and across yes. the world. Yeah. And I don't understand. Like, I've never understood. You have to be, <laughs> you have to not have any sort of analysis to not, like, to understand that that's what we're dealing with. We are dealing with an institution where people say, My Uncle Jimmy is a cop and my Uncle Jimmy is great. I, I love my Uncle Jimmy. I, no, no, I, he,
2: I understand. I understand no that. But, I, but I, yeah. I'm thinking, I'm thinking of a place where, yeah. like, when you talk about the Twin Cities, two years ago, they burned down a police station. They like, didn't burn it, down one police station, but they burned down one, at least one police station and they tried to burn down another one.
0: Yeah, but and, they were, but that was and not. with some, with
2: some, with some public support. Yeah, but,
0: but j- so that so here's where I'm at with that which is yeah. your your assumption that mm-hmm. a ballot initiative where 40, no, but where 45 <laughs> where where not most of the people were even represented but even out of that small number 45 percent of the people mm-hmm. said yes to wanting a Department of Public Safety sure. So even within that, there's stratification. That's, mm-hmm. that was a lot of people in that. It is, talk.
2: and Latin right? <laughs> you would you would you would have assumed might have been the case a couple years prior. Yeah, right? I mean,
0: but that's a base from which these folks in Minneapolis need to build, mm-hmm. right? Like to me, I'm I have to say that's what I mean by like my disagree. I'm astonished. Mm-hmm. That forty five percent of the people checked off, yes, let's go with this.
2: Sure,
0: that actually tells me that we have some place to grow, and we have a place to build from, rather mm-hmm. than the other side of it being like, well, we lost, and that's a lot of people. So that's one angle of it. The second mm-hmm. angle of it is like the cops are super popular. I sure. I don't know how abolition. I I am not deluded, mm-hmm. okay, that we are fighting against a massively well funded popular set of institutions even as a lot of people talk about fuck the police do do, do, do that no people like the cops (laughs) so we have to deal with that and we have to figure out within the constructs of that how do we actually shape the world that we want and build and keep growing taking more and more people onto our side persuading them onto our side i think we're doing a really good job like from where I from where I started to where I am now, mm-hmm. I can tell you that when Clinton's people came to Harlem in 1993 to sell the ninety four uh, Yeah, the, the crime bill. Yeah, I, I was in a church at Abyssinia packed to the gills with black folks who were like, get those friggin drug dealers off our streets by any means necessary. We don't care. I think two people spoke out in that room of hundreds against that bill. That could not happen today. If that same meeting was called today, (laughs) there would not just be two people in the room speaking out against it, you know, amongst black folks. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I just think that we have, we just have to complicate the situation and also take the long view and also understand how much progress has been made to break that hegemonic, what it feels like sometimes, a hegemonic behemoth of like, We absolutely love this institution. This institution has to stay forever. This institution wasn't here forever. It will not be here forever. Let's try to move in the steps that get us closer towards that world. That's how I see it. But I I hear you and I really like, and yeah. And we lose a lot in organizing, but sometimes we win. And that's the bottom line.
1: (laughs) So in a lot of ways, the, the discussion you two have had kind of crystallizes more my question. Um, cause I, I know, that, know that I initially thought of these questions, they were kind of posing almost as if, well, well, girl, you didn't win today. What's wrong with you? And your perspective is right. But basically, we grow through time. And so we shouldn't see this being, my God, we fail. But more simply, this is happening today and tomorrow will be stronger. Yeah. And my question then is how to get stronger a- and how do we make sure we don't plateau at a certain level? And I don't know what that, what that level actually is. I, I use the mm. example of, of back looking at the labor movement and the CIO back in the 30s and 40s. Mm. It has some unions that were definitely left-led left, left, left unions. Mm. And so in terms of, from my perspective, the peak of left power and labor, it happened in, in the mid to late 40s. Mm. And folks took their ass kicked. Mm. Okay. Mm. And so the, so the question is not only how do we both build today and serve it today, but also how do we find ways to keep expanding and make sure we don't plateau? And, yeah. and, and that to me, that's an important question to, to pose. It is. And I don't, I don't know the answer at all, but simply I throw it out there and I give you five seconds of the answer for me. You go forward. I but seriously, five that, that's the important question. Okay?
0: Yeah, it is important question. And my answer is, I don't know, but here's what I do know. I do know that, you know, we're having a series of gatherings this, this summer with a bunch of the organizers who worked in Minneapolis on that campaign, on other places to assess, okay, what happened for real? What still needs to happen? What do you take away from this really intensive one-year push that you all did that got you 45% of people on your side, but what needs to happen to move it to 55 and to 60 and to 70? What's the work there? Right. And I don't know the answers. I don't know what they're going to say. I don't know where they, their learnings are, but I'm very interested to hear it. I'm very excited to be in conversation with them and keep learning and growing myself. Right. But I'm just going to keep putting one foot in front of the other, taking the long view, understanding that we're going to get our asses kicked sometimes under this system that's to be a given but what I don't want I don't want particularly these younger organizers to be demoralized to the point where they feel like oh we just this is like this friggin is major okay (laughs) what you all did over there and what you are still doing because they are still going door to door They're still knocking on people's doors, having individual conversations with them about cops. Like, it hasn't ended. They haven't shut down their organizations and gone home. They're taking a breath, and they are thinking, and they are planning, and they are growing, and they're saying, seeing where were the points where we could have done better here, and what does better look like? And then trying to go back out into the communities and do that again. So I'm encouraged—I don't—maybe this is just me, or maybe I'm not— like in reality or something, but I am encouraged. I'm incredibly encouraged. I keep I keep coming across people who contact us at IC and they're like, we're in Utah. We're trying to friggin' make sure that our library isn't taken over by the police department. Like literally, <laughs> they want to take over our library and form a police department. And we are organizing a campaign to stop them from doing that. What resources are out there to help us? Like, we are hearing from folks in Utah doing that, okay? To me, that means something has shifted where people are listening with a different ear and willing to do things differently than they had before. And that's, that's, all, I can, that's all I can hold on to as, like, a, a way forward and a way to continue to grow. And I have no control over all the rest, I really don't know. I don't, I, you know, I don't care about the Democratic Party to the extent that, like, my, expe- my expectation is they will be, they are our opponents on this. We're, like, we are not, I'm actually, I'm not allied with Joe Biden. I didn't even vote for him, okay? I didn't have to because I live in New York. Like, I knew I, I had direct input on his friggin' since the 1980s. I have seen this man. I knew where we would be on criminal punishment issues. Everybody and their mother will point to the fact that I informed every single person who I'm in comradeship. This guy is going to make it very difficult. In fact, we may go backwards as it relates to criminal punishment issues in particular. You may say that other issues could advance, right, in a different way because you don't want a fascist in power and continuing to make sure that you know, now democracy is completely gone as a as a potential option. So you're putting this person in as a, a stopgap, but on issues of criminal punishment, I thought he would be more right-wing than Trump. I think I was right. I think personally, being on the ground, what has gone on, on immigration and detention and all these, I think he has done more damage. He's not had one single clemency. What's What kind of message that that sent. You may not have liked who, uh, who uh, Trump gave c to, but he used his powers. He used his powers to free people. This guy hasn't done a single one since he's been in, op- in office. So we have to ask ourselves some real hard questions about like, at what level are we aligning ourselves with a party that actually is doing so much damage in some sectors, while everybody makes a trade-off for less damage in another sector. And I understand that we do this all the time for everything. But I'm saying on criminal punishment issues, this guy is worse than 45 was. And demonstrably so. So I
1: need to begin to land the plane, because we have some some time limits here. We could talk for hours, obviously. Let me say a couple things not land the plane. In the kind of debriefing that you're gonna go to, I would raise the question of durable organizations where people can be actual participants to be active in mm-hmm, is an sure. important part of the story. Just, I don't know what it means, by the way, just throw it out there. Yeah. And the last thing in terms of, of Biden, and the whole quote from good old Frederick Douglass, he said yesterday to us, right, um, that, that, that the power of are conscribed by our power, basically. And, 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 and so to me, the issue is not so much who is Biden, but what's our power? How do we grow more? Mm-hmm. And the less power I ha- we have, the more he can be who he is. Mm-hmm. And the more power we have, the less he can be who he actually is.
2: Sure, sure. Who, are, who are we? Who are we, in some sense, right? Well, Not just uh, who is that person, but um, who are yeah, we? of
0: course, yeah. Or who yeah, are we yeah. trying
1: to be? A famous book title said, "We do this till we free us." So <laughs> that's good enough. Okay.
0: There we go. that's the
1: title of a Miriam's book. But Miriam, I want to ask you a couple questions closing up. I know we all got to sure. go. Yeah. Um, what books are you reading and articles are you reading right now? Can I keep you going.
0: Oh gosh, well I'm in school full time, um, and so I have had just a lot of school related. <laughs> reading and books. Mm-hmm. In fact, I, I'm supposed to be reading something for today's class and I did not. Um, so I've been doing a lot of that stuff. Uh, but I um, I have some books that I've been picking up on the side. I'm currently looking through and reading Ruth Wilson Gilmore's new book on um, Abolition Geography, um, which is a, a, a book of essays uh, that's coming out in May. Um, and I'm really enjoying um, that. Um, I have been reading um, a recent collection put out by Verso uh, of uh, uh, Raymond Williams's work. Um, so uh, it's uh, I think it's called Culture and Politics: Class, Writing, and Socialism. So I'm I'm reading that um, right now. Um, Is he? I've always been interested in his concepts and thinking around imagination. And then um, hopefully when I have a moment and when the semester ends in mid-May, I'm going to pick up a book that I already ordered that came recently, um, which is called Arise Africa, Roar China. Um, And it is uh, Black and Chinese Citizens of the World in the 20th Century, a new book about um, Sino-African and Sino-African-American relations. Um, I've been very interested in that for many years and now I'm hoping to read more and learn more with that book. So those are some of the books that I have in the hopper.
1: Yeah, yeah that's also fascinating. I'm looking forward to Ruthie's book. Yeah. Um, I'm not an insider. I don't have a copy yet, but I, when it comes out to the masses, <laughs> I'll try to see it. The regular um, people. us regular yeah, um, people. Yeah. <laughs>
0: I was, I'm supposed to, I was supposed to blurb this book and I am past the blurb deadline. So I'm going to give them a blurb for the website. <laughs> That's the way it's
1: going. Okay. but, but what, 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 music, what music can you going though? What music so can you
0: I can't even begin. I'm the, I'm the uh, resident DJ for all of our virtual events, DJ MK. Oh, cool. So, um, I love African music of all sorts. Um, huge fan of particularly, uh, central African music, Suclus, um, I love you know every kind. I love Sadif is my go-to from my my because my my father's one of my father's favorites was Sadif Keita, so I still listen to him all the time. Um, so I'm a big fan of that kind of music. I love Caribbean music of various kinds. Um, still listen to Kassav all the time, um, and I love kind of old school soul music. Those are the areas that you'll usually find on my iPad.
1: Sounds cool. Brenda's mm-hmm. been wonderful, seriously. I've so enjoyed meeting you.
0: Y'all, Yo, Having the conversation.
1: Too. This has been so, super cool.
0: Thank so you thanks for, for inviting thank,
1: me. <laughs> thanks for coming on. You be Absolutely. well, okay?
0: Absolutely. Take care.
1: History depicts 19th century abolitionist John Brown as wild-eyed and crazy. And we who to want to shape how history will look back upon today's times, soon to depict today's abolitionists as wild-out and crazy, shouting impractical slogans such as defund the police. What was so great about talking with Miriam was hearing her flesh out her dreams of a world not structured around various forms of state-organized violence, and hearing her tease out how we get there. She's right. Most folk don't want more police. Their dreams for their families and neighborhoods are multidimensional, including, but not limited to, issues of safety. For many, their call for more policing reflects their belief that there is no alternative pathway to safety. Our task is to forge that pathway. It is not realistic nor fair to insist that Miriam and other abolitionists have the pathway to present to us as the Brazilian educator, Paulo Fieri said often, paraphrasing the Spanish poet Antonio Machado, we make the road by walking. I don't take this as a promotion of blind spontaneity. To me, it is simply a recognition that in a world as complex and crazy as today, one cannot know the precise steps that will take us to the world we deserve. But by engaging the world, to change the world, we will uncover that path. Who would have predicted that a young black man recently fired from his job at Amazon would come together with friends and coworkers to be the first group of workers in the United States to unionize? Who can know exactly how we will achieve what Dr. King called the beloved community? But you know, John Brown was correct. Thanks for joining me this week on Black Work Talk. Our co-sponsor, Organizing Upgrade, is now Convergence, still an online space created to strengthen social movements. But the new name is accompanied by new energies and new ways to lift up stories and engage in strategic debates. Please check out Convergence's website at convergencemag.com or its Facebook page. And pick up the new Convergence book, Power Conceives Nothing, How Grassroot Organizing Wins Elections. It's a collection of essays and interviews about the on-the-ground efforts that mobilized voters in 2020. I hope this podcast can grow to become part of the network of our movement for change. We need your help as we build the Blackboard Talk community. Please subscribe to the podcast wherever you find your podcast and go to Patreon to become a sustainer. And beyond the financial support, I'd love to hear from you. What do you think about the show? Any suggestions for future guests or future topics to explore? Please let me know. Reach out to me at stephen at blackworktalk.com. I promise to get back to you. Until next time, stay safe and be well.